Good morning. Good to see you all. I'm going to move this up here because I can't see it down there. So it's good to be back. Good to be with you, all you indoor people, outdoor people. Hi, out there. Facebook people. Nice to see you too. All right, so Nehemiah 8, and uh, she did a wonderful job with all those names. That was, that's not an easy task. I was practicing them myself, so. Um, this, where we are in, in this series uh, from, through Ezra and Nehemiah is basically the temple and the wall have been built now. And so, but something more important now needs to happen, and that is the rebuilding of their hearts around the law of God. So in verse 1 here, you read, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So the whole idea here is that walls and temples are nice. I mean, these were important. Uh, I mean, their entire national identity has been around these, their worship. Um, you know, when they, when they built the temple, it says that the old men and old women who had been there 70 years before as little children now saw the temple and they just began weeping when they saw the temple built. When the wall was built, a great accomplishment, the nation coming together around something that again would help identify them as God's people. But now they had to rebuild around God's word. This is what defined them. It was, it was this spoken tradition, oral tradition they called it back then, um, of who God was and, and who his people were, and then written down in the law of God and given to Moses. And so the people come together and they say, why don't you come on out, Ezra, and bring the word of God with you. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to remember who we are and what we're all about. So we're going to talk about this. What I want to talk about today is I want to talk about, first of all, what God's law is. What is the law? Because I think there's a lot of confusion around, as Christians, you know, followers of Christ, how do we follow the law? I mean, what, is it, what does it do for us? How do we gear our lives around it? What does that mean? Because now we live under grace. And then I want to talk about what we need to do in order to build around God's word, build around God's law. And then finally, I want to talk about how we know that we're actually building around God's law. So if we really do build around God's word, around who he is, and, and we find our identity in that, there's going to be markers that we can look at, look at in our community of people here at Generations Church and go, okay, we're on the right track right now. Okay, so first of all, let's look. You might be asking, what is God's law and, and does it have anything to do with followers of Christ? And I would just start by saying, yes, it absolutely has something to do with us. I mean, the scripture we believe in both, the scripture is the Old Testament and the New Testament. The gospel is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why we're doing a series right now in the Old Testament, because we believe that the Old Testament points toward Christ. But when the people asked Ezra to bring the law of God, they were referring to the law of Moses. Hey, now, you'll read, if you're reading through the New Testament or through the Scripture, you'll see a lot of times Jesus referred to the law and the prophets. You'll see Paul refer to the law. Anytime you see that, almost, almost all the time, it's referring to the first five books of the Bible. That was the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses from God to his people. A lot of times that's called the Pentateuch. Maybe you've heard that term if you took, went to seminary, like some of us did. Um, Torah, you know, that's kind of a Jewish term that they use to refer to the God's law. Uh, sometimes Jesus, when he's talking about Moses or the prophets, whenever he sees, says Moses, he's referring to these, the law, the, these first five books of the Bible, and sometimes just law simply refers to this. So, so we know that Jesus saw the law as important. He was Jewish himself and followed the law. Uh, we know that, that, uh, that Paul was the, the, the great apostle Paul who planted all those churches and really spurred this movement of Christianity through rapid growth of the Roman Empire was, was trained in the law and spoke about the law. But the law was given, we have to remember, the purpose of the law is not for us to, as Christians right now to go, oh, that, those are rules that we must follow and if we don't follow those exactly, God's not going to be happy with us. The purpose of the law, even when it was given to Moses, was to show people, to give them a knowledge of their sin. It was to make them aware of where they were off. 
It was really to help them. To help them become God's people more and more. To, the purpose was that they would be, in the, by living in the law and understanding the law, that they would become more and more knowledgeable of who God was and therefore experience a greater sense of his kingdom. God building his kingdom is what he's always been about. And the law was given for us. You know, he gave the, the law would be like the commandments, you know, the Ten Commandments. How many of you learned the Ten Commandments, you know, as a kid in church? I, I grew up in that kind of environment. A sacrificial system that says that when you don't meet these marks of the law, here's how you go and make a sacrifice. Every, anytime there was a disobedience or a breaking of the law, usually something had to die in order for there to be restitution, for something to be made right. And then there were these feasts that were regularly observed to kind of remember who you were as people. A lot of times these feasts that they had in Israel that was described in the law of Moses was there so that we would remember, they would remember the great stories. For example, the Passover, you know, when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. You know, they'd have these feasts, these times of remembrances where they would remember who God was and what he's done in their lives. The law was given so their community could show the world that they were God's people. But there's a problem with, with this, right? I mean, when you and I look at the law, and if we were to base our lives entirely on the law, and you read through the Old Testament and all the, you know, the Bible, you, you see this very blatant theme that human beings are incapable of following the law. <laughs> we're not very good at it, right? I mean... <laughs> It's really hard to follow the law <laughs> perfectly, which is what a perfect God demands. Um, I mean, God's people all throughout, I mean, that's the, kind of the, the pattern throughout the Old Testament is the, the big theme is that, man, Israel is just one big failure. <laughs> and they just can't get it right. You get to the New Testament and, and you see Jesus with his disciples and it's, I mean, they just can't get it right. <laughs> And I think that's kind of the point because what we see then, and this is where the law really has meaning. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you see this beautiful dance between the law and grace. The law is not meant for us to be a burden that brings us down and, and, and places this, this thing upon us that, that burdens us, that creates angst and anxiety in our faith. What, what we are is, is we live in grace with Jesus Christ. So what happened was that we couldn't follow the law, so God intervened himself because he loves us so much. He sent his son to earth, Jesus, and he lived the perfect life, perfectly obeyed the law, which we couldn't. And I love what Jesus says. He says that, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. So even Jesus says the law and the prophets still matter to see where we're off. But he says, I have come to, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That if we really want to know what it means to follow and build our lives around the law, we actually build and follow Jesus. We build our lives around Christ. Because he's the one that did it perfectly when we couldn't. John 1, if you look at John 1, a lot of times we, we read or hear John 1 around Christmas time, which is coming, all right. Um, <laughs> but, but John 1 is such a beautiful passage that talks about this, that it starts off by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That the word of God, this, this law, this beautiful, how we know what God is and what he demands and what he looks like and how he acts and, and his relationship toward us can be completely summed up in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Jesus has been there in the beginning. He he's, was there all through when Israel was sinning and couldn't get it right, knew exactly what their issues were. And, and then when he came to earth, he embodied humanity and lived perfectly in obedience to the law. And he perfectly followed it. But the problem is there still has to be a sacrifice, right? I mean, if, if we're still around, I mean, even if Jesus is following the law perfectly, there still has to be a sacrifice. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to live a perfect life, to satisfy the law, and then himself, God incarnate, become the sacrifice, the final sacrifice, to satisfy the law, 
to repair our brokenness with one another and with God. And so now when we talk about rebuilding around God's law or rebuilding around God's word, what we're really talking about as followers of Christ is rebuilding our lives continually around Jesus Christ. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Through faith in Christ, if you believe, if Jesus is your Lord, Romans says, if Jesus is your Lord and you profess that with your mouth and you believe in your heart that he raised from the dead, you will be sons of God. You are part of God's family. You belong to him. You're his people. So it's not on the basis of what we do and how we follow the law, but it's on the basis of grace and our faith in Christ. So this passage is really interesting because here you got these people asking, you know, this is pre-Jesus, a lot's happened between then and now. (laughs) But you've got these people coming and requesting, desiring to know God, desiring to be reminded of who they are. And so they request the law of God. And in this passage, we can get some ideas of what it looks like maybe for us to rebuild our life around the word of God, around Jesus Christ. What do we need in order to rebuild around this? Well, first thing is we need attentive ears and hearts. Attentive ears and hearts. Are you listening? (laughs) Are your hearts alive? It means you're open to Jesus and open to what he has to say. This passage goes on. It says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women. That's a big deal back then, that women were there. And all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate, very public, from early morning for about 30 minutes until people got tired and went home and did their, no. (laughs) Look how long he read. (laughs) And he read from facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. And, And early morning actually in the Hebrew probably means like as the sun was coming up. So they got up before when it was dark out, they all came down. And as the sun was coming up, Ezra starts to read the word of God and he continues till about noon, man. I mean, he's that, yeah, that's never happened to me. People have never in the church requested that I, John, we don't really want you to preach. We want you to come and read the Bible to me for like six hours straight. <laughs> I would actually really enjoy that. That'd be kind of fun. But no one's ever asked me to do that. I don't know why. <laughs> People are like, you went over 30 minutes. Ah, No, <laughs> it's all good. But they had attentive ears and hearts. It says that people came together as one man. I love that picture. They came together as one people. We, we, that concept is so foreign to us in our, especially in American culture, where individualism is what's held up and exalted, our individualism. And there's some good things to American individualism. Don't get me wrong. I, I, love, I love being American. I think, you know, there's some incredible stories and things that have happened, our freedoms. And, but in the church, we're a family. We're the body of Christ. And each one of you has, plays a necessary and important part of the body of Christ. And so we come together, when we come here on Sundays, whenever we gather in our homes or get together for a meal or anything like that, we got to remember that, that we are the body of Christ. We come together as one man, one person, seeking God, desiring Jesus, desiring what he brings for us. This isn't you and your own little spiritual world coming and sitting here alone and and, and just it's you and Jesus. That's not what our faith is about. Our faith is a communal faith. It's always been a communal faith. Now, definitely there's an individual aspect to it. But I think we've diminished, significantly diminished at our own peril, the community aspect of, of our faith. That if someone's faith is, is, is struggling or someone else is hurting in some way, that that's just like me, myself, hurting or struggling. And so I'm there to help lift up. Attentive ears and hearts. And they came as one man. And I love how it says that they, they, they pursued and they desired the word of God. So the first thing we need is attentive ears and hearts. The second thing we need is assuredness that it will be so. When we hear the word of God, we come not only with attentive ears and hearts and ready to listen, ready to learn, ready to understand what God might have for me or want me to change, but we have assuredness that it's going to be so. I love how Ezra blesses the Lord and the people reply by saying amen. I'm going to get to that. The word amen, though, actually means it shall be so. We come expecting God to do what he says he's going to do because he always does. 
Sometimes we miss it, but he always does. And then the third thing that we need is leaders who give the sense, okay? So we need assuredness it'll be so, and then leaders who give the sense. I love this phrase, give the sense. Listen to verse seven to eight. If I can see it, I forgot my glasses today. Oh, those are all those names in verse seven. Verse eight. <laughs> I'm not even gonna, I can pronounce them, but I'm not gonna do that. Um, all these, all these leaders, they stepped up and they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, <laughs> and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Wow. Imagine being read the word of God and then it explained in a way so you could actually understand it. And these guys were doing this. And what I imagine was happening, probably what was happening was that they, Ezra would get up and read a portion of scripture, probably a manageable portion, kind of like maybe like I'm doing right now or we do every week here. And then the, the Levites and these leaders would be kind of mingling around the people. And where there was a question, they'd kind of come over and help them understand what was going on. And there's this kind of give and take and, and people would, would, would be very open about what they were perplexed about, what their questions were. So leaders were prepared and able to give the sense. I think that if we're going to rebuild around God's word, we need these three things. We need attentive ears and hearts. We've got to have the assuredness that God is going to do what he says, that it shall be so. And we need leaders who give the sense. They make sense of it. So then how do we know that we're building around God's word? So, I mean, I'm assuming that most of us are here because that's our desire. Our desire is to see our lives built around God's word, which never changes. Um, those of you who call yourselves followers of Christ, you have a desire to pursue Jesus and become more like him. And, experience, and, and for all of us, I would imagine, we all love the idea of living in the kingdom of God. I mean, it's going to be pretty awesome. I mean, and, and, and when we come to faith in Christ, it says that we get a taste of that even in this broken world we live in. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, even as you're sitting there wearing your COVID mask, you get to experience and taste the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> even if you have COVID and have no sense of taste or smell, you can still taste the kingdom. So how do we know that we're building around God's word? Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think the first thing that'll happen if we rebuild our lives, if we're truly rebuilding our lives and our church around Christ and his word is that our joy will increase. We'll be more joyful people. I want to go on a rant so bad right now because I see so much lack of joy in the church today. And I wonder, I just wonder if the reason the church in America, especially the evangelical church in the United States and Northern America is dying isn't because of our lack of joy. That's a reason. If the Spirit's truly among us, we, we, we complain less. We're more grateful. We're more generous. These things just happen. They're not something we should really tr even try to do. It's just as we learn more about Jesus and who he is, we love him more and we fall more and more in love with his word and the, the joy becomes a part of it. Now, there's a place for, rem for, for remorse of our sin. Jesus even says that blessed are those who mourn. So there's a time and a place for those things. But the thing that really defines the people of God is the people of God is their joy in the midst of any circumstance. I think I've talked about this last time I was here. I was talking about how, you know, in the early church when, you know, one of the apostles or a couple of the apostles or disciples would go off and, and proclaim the word of God and then they'd just get beaten because of persecution. They'd come back and what would the church do? They'd just start celebrating. Hey, you got beaten. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I talked about this last time too. That Jeff, you know, Jeff's a Jeff's kind of a fighter. He's kind of a scrappy little little guy. I got. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, man. I got. I got in trouble once for calling Jeff short from up here, but it's okay. Joy, man. Joy. It's okay. Just settle down. Simmer down. You know, but if Jeff goes out and he's proclaiming the word and our culture becomes this one of horrible, horrific persecution, like it is some places in the world, and Jeff gets beaten to death and he comes walking in all scraggly with his eye out, popping out and, you know, he's, he's bloody and he comes in. We don't go, oh, Jeff, are you okay? Oh, no. No, we start celebrating. Yeah, Jeff got beaten. <laughs> <laughs> For the sake of the gospel. Sounds weird, but it's kind of true. Why joy? Why joy and not, not sorrow? Well, because it goes back to the kingdom of heaven. That God is establishing his kingdom. That's the gospel is that God is in the business of establishing his kingdom, whether we like it or not. It's happening. And so... If joy, joy, and joy is one of the major markers of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus described it this way. He said it's like there is this field and some guy at some point buried a huge treasure. You know, you think of us like going on, you know, maybe treasure hunts. You think about the pirates, you're going back and, you know, searching for treasure on some desert island. You know, but, but this guy buried treasure and then some other dude came along and he found the treasure in this field and said, I'm going to buy that field and the treasure's mine. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man covered up and man found and covered up. Then his joy, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When you discover the kingdom of God and you see how good Christ is and how good Jesus is and you get a taste of that kingdom, you want it so badly you're willing to give anything up for it. There's a lot of good things in life and I'm going to be talking about some good things here in a little minute. Really good things. There's some good things in life, but nothing compares to the kingdom of God. Nothing. And when you get a taste of that, you know it and it becomes your pursuit Throughout the Psalms, I love the Psalms are written, um, they were originally written really for, um, you know, David wrote a lot of them, Solomon wrote a lot of them, um, but, but what they, the way they were used after they were written was as kind of public worship. So they would get up and actually chant the Psalms together or sing the Psalms together, or it was a call and response where their, a leader would get up and say a portion, and then the, you know, the, the congregation or the people would say a portion of the Psalm back to them. It was a, it was a form of worship is what it was. And you can't read through these psalms without seeing a major theme of these psalms and of worship is joy. Major theme. Even in the midst of some of the most horrific circumstances. You know, you think of David after he, you know, had his situation with Bathsheba and he's wallowing in his sin and he's just mortified by what he had done and, and he had murdered somebody and he says, Lord, return to me the joy of your salvation. He knew that he wanted that kingdom. He wanted to remember the kingdom he is a part of. That's why Jesus, a big part of Jesus' message and, and the apostles' message was repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And I love, in this text, we see this. We see that the people hear the law of God. The purpose of the law, remember, is to remind you of where you're off. So they're reminded, and what do they do? They start, oh no, they start getting so brokenhearted about their own sinfulness and where they're off, which is, on a right and appropriate response. However, <laughs> these leaders say, you don't stay in that. As God's people, yes, you confess your sin, you're mortified by your sin, but you never stay in that because God's kingdom is one of grace and fullness. And we rejoice that we've been saved from that sin. And they say, so don't be sad, don't grieve, have joy. Have joy. I think we could use a little more joy in the church today. <laughs> Love joy. Okay, so how do we know we're rebuilding around God's word? The first indicator is joy increases. The second is real worship takes place. Real worship takes place. What is real worship? Okay, now I think 
not for all of it. This is a major generalization, okay? So don't go get off in a minute. Oh, that's not what I think. But I think a lot of people in the church, generally speaking, when they say, oh, that was some good worship on Sunday, they're referring to the music. And yes, music is a great way to bring us into worship, to draw us into worship. I think music, honestly, what we did this morning is more of a proclamation of the gospel. Um, the Bible says that when we come together, we're supposed to sing spiritual songs and hymns and psalms to one another. And so we did that. Um, and it, it was a reminder of who we are in Christ. But I think that when we talk about worship, it's so much more than just music. I think in the American church, especially American evangelical churches, we have relied on this emotional experience in order to determine whether or not Sunday morning was meaningful or not. Oh, the music was sure energetic that morning. Man, I knew the Holy Spirit was there. Or, oh, man, they really blew it on that song. Maybe God will show up next week. I don't, I've never heard anybody say that, but you know what I mean, right? We tend to, we tend to base our emotional ups and downs on how good and spectacular the Sunday morning thing went. You know, I love, I mean, my daughter's in the band. I, I know her heart and I love my daughter and, and the new guy, he's, he's awesome. <laughs> Can't even remember his name, sorry, man. <laughs> Steven, that's right. <laughs> They're all laughing out there because he's out there. <laughs> he's got a cool hat though. But <laughs> sorry. But he, um, you know, I love the hearts of the people. And, 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 and when you see a good worship leader, you know, they have a way, a, a gift, a spiritual gift of drawing you into a focus on Christ. And it's beautiful when that happens. But it has more to do with our hearts than it does any performance or skill that we see up here. Real worship is about us together receiving and responding, receiving God, receiving his gifts, and then responding to his gifts. If you come to Sunday morning worship or any, any gathering of the church and expect something more than that, if you expect some great show or experience or your emotions to be lifted high and low, which again, when that happens, that's wonderful, but you're, you're bound to eventually be disappointed the church is never going to satisfy you. Jeff and I are always going to preach too long. <laughs> always. We're never going to... Sorry, dude. I know. It's <laughs> but you get my point. What do we come to worship with? If we understand worship as, as an experience, we're going to be disappointed. But if we come expecting to receive from God and respond to God... That's a completely different thing. That's why I love, I love the Lord's Supper. I love communion. You know, some call it Eucharist, which is, which is a fancy word for the Thanksgiving. <laughs> I love that. Because when we come to the table and we, we eat you know, the, the bread and drink the wine together, we're remembering Jesus. We're receiving from him. We're receiving Christ is what we're doing. There's something very mysterious about it too that we can't quite understand and explain. But we receive Christ, but then we're also responding by by taking those things and saying, yes, this is what we're about. And it's not an individualistic thing. It's a community thing. Where we recognize one another in this too. That we're part of a family. So the second thing that I know when we build around God's word is that real worship takes place. Verse 6, um, if you go back to verse, verse 6, really kind of shows some things that I think are really um, helpful for us. It says that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Ezra blessed the Lord. When we bless the Lord, this is one thing that we can do continually. And, and even recognize it in our songs, it's there all the time, is bless the Lord. What does it mean to bless the Lord? It means that we say, God, you are my God. You are God Almighty. Nothing in this world compares to you. And I give you my life. This is what it means to be bless the Lord. You say, when you bless the Lord, you say, my identity is found primarily in who Jesus is. Not in anything I do or anything that's been done to me. Any name that I wear. Any citizenship I have. Any political party I might be a part of. 
All that pales in comparison to my identity that's found in Jesus Christ. That defines who I am. That's what it means to bless the Lord. When you confess your faith, you are blessing the Lord. When you sing these songs and, and you, you sing truths you know, to Jesus and the cross reminds us that that's what's happening. When you sing and you, and you sing to one another, maybe some of these words of comfort that we sing sometimes in church, we're blessing the name of the Lord because we're reminding ourselves that he's what we're about. You know, he goes on and says that all the people, and there it is again. Remember, they came together as one man. It says, all the people lifted up their voices. Our worship form, I think, um, again, and I know, I know this is something that we're working on, but worship form is so one directional. I mean, I, I'm here talking at you right now, which again, there's a place and a time for proclamation and preaching of God's word. But there's a the church historically has been this call and response also. That there's a time where, where we respond together in songs and, and hymns and, and even great liturgies that we've completely lost over the last couple of generations. That were around for 2,000 years. Beautiful things that, like uh, John Chrysostom or Basil the Great wrote these incredible liturgies that the church would use for, in their worship services for hundreds and hundreds of years, and we've completely lost those now. And sometimes I ask myself, I wonder at what expense? We've lost our, our connection with the historical church, with the great cloud of witnesses who, is, who are among us right now. And I'm not talking about you physically in this room, but there's a cloud of witnesses, as the Bible says, that we are among, that are watching that my grandparents who, who loved Jesus are still a part of my family, still a part of the family of God. And we're worshiping Jesus together. Real worship takes place and all the people came together. We sing together, we pray together, we let our, nodes, our needs be known. That's one of the things I love. I, I've planted, been a part of several church plants, new, new church startups, and I always love the beginning because it's always us sitting in a living room and it's so vulnerable and so real and, and so personal that we know each other's needs. And that means we let each other know our needs. <laughs> There's vulnerability there. But it's, worship is a community thing. I think in, individualized worship might be another thing that could be hurting our churches. And then he said the people respond to Ezra blessing the name of the Lord with what? Come on, let's hear it. Amen. What? Amen. People outside, what? Oh, that was lame. <laughs> okay. Amen and amen. Not just one amen, two amens. <laughs> amen and amen. It shall be so, and it shall be so. That's some pretty severe confidence around what God's going to do. God, you are my God. We live only for you. You are what, I'm all, what we're all about. We gather around you. Amen and amen. That's why I love ameners in the church. I've never been one. I mean, I grew up in a Lutheran church and we were very reserved and we were very, you know, I was like, my parents, I love my parents. My parents have changed a little bit in this, but like whenever someone was an amener in the church, it was always like, oh, how dare you draw attention to yourself? One time we had a dude who would like raise his hands. I mean, God forbid he raised his hands during worship. Wow. You know, and it was this thing. It was like, don't draw attention to yourselves. But that's not biblical at all. <laughs> We're all supposed to be doing this. And so it shouldn't, I mean, we all can respond in this way. I know some of you are reserved. I'm, I'm probably not going to become an amen or all of a sudden, but like, but there's ways we, we, it's okay. It's good. When someone yells out amen, yeah. When someone yells out amen, that reassure, that's to reassure us. And if, if more people do it, then you're not the only one doing it. You're not drawing attention to yourself. Okay? Uh-oh. <laughs> no, good. Amenders have it right. Okay? Responding. Then comes my favorite part of the passage. Oh, my gosh, I love this part. Verse 10. Verse 10. 
Then he said to them, Ezra, go your way. This is after they repent and they tell them to be joyful. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this is a day that's holy to the Lord. <laughs> holy day is a really holy day when it includes eating the fat, drinking the sweet wine, and giving alms to the poor. There's something very spiritual about eating a good meal together. You can't read through the New Testament, for example, and read about the early church and read about Jesus and his disciples without getting the impression that they ate and they drank together a lot. Jesus had the reputation, although he never sinned, we, have, we always have to say that, we know he never sinned, but, but Jesus had the reputation of hanging out with drunkards and gluttons. Is that our reputation? <laughs> are we known as the people that are so joyful that we just love to party together and feast together all the time? Some of the best forms of worship I've had, actually, in the last year and a half, maybe, have been around meals with my Christian friends. And my wife and I, we, we, we do a date night most weeks. And there's this place we discovered near our house where there's a barbecue guy. And he makes, you know, your typical barbecue stuff. But then he makes something that's not very typical. I think I have a picture of it. And the picture does not do it justice. I'm just telling you. That is a piece of bacon. It's $2.00. And you get a piece of bacon, and it's like a half inch to three quarters inch thick, and it's like candied, encrusted in like maple candy stuff. It's, just, it's ridiculously good. Eat the fat. <laughs> eat the fat. My daughter's a vegetarian. I asked her this morning, what do vegetarians eat if they eat the fat? And she goes, avocados. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, eat the fat. <laughs> and drink the sweet wine right? My buddy, I, I just got done in a great job down in San Diego where I was remodeling or, or helping him with a remodel and a new build for a friend. I was doing all the finish work. And it was great because once or twice a week, he would come up to me at the end of the day around five o'clock and go, what time is it? And, and he was, he's been a church planner. He's been in ministry for years. And I go, oh man, yes it is. So he'd go to his, his little fridge and he'd grab two just really, really, really expensive and nice drinks. And we'd go out on his little balcony and we'd sit up there probably for an hour at the end of the day and enjoy our drinks together. We didn't go crazy, but have some of the best conversations about Christ and his church that I think I've had in years. He's saying... Enjoy God's gifts from time to time. It's a reflection of who God is and his goodness in your life. I encourage you, go out and have lunch together afterwards. <laughs> go enjoy yourself. I'm probably going to go for a sale this afternoon. It's going to be no wind, but it's still going to be great. I'm going to bring some fat probably with me to eat <laughs> in some form. All right. Then thir verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. So this, what happens here is you've got this time where the whole, all the people come together Ask Ezra to read the scripture. They study the scripture for a good portion of a day. And then what results from that is that now heads of households and other leaders decide to take it upon themselves to go and study even more together. Probably for the purpose of equipping themselves so that they can continue to equip the people of God. This is a pattern that's been around for forever. I know this church is very good at this. One of the things I've always admired about Jeff's ministry, I've known him for years now and Almost decades, wow. And I've always admired the way he, he, he makes it in, in very intentional steps to bring leaders together to study the word of God. You do this in your homes throughout the week. It's a very important piece. Now, you might be questioning, okay, that's wonderful for leaders, all right? So we've got our appointed leaders. And um, raise your hand if you're a pastor. 
in this church. You know, he pointed at pastor. Come on, dude. Raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep it up. Come on. You're helping me. Can you guys help me with my illustration? Please just help me. Okay. Just help me out. Okay. Elders. Are there any elders? Okay. Yeah. Raise your hands. Keep your hands up. Keep, keep it up. Keep it up. Okay. Deacons. Any deacons? Okay. A lot of deacons. Awesome. Like to have a lot of deacons. Okay, so, so keep, keep them up. Come on. It's not too hard. You can do it. Okay. Um, these are appointed leaders. And yes, studying, and they should make it a priority in their lives to equip the church, to be equipped to equip the church. However, it also says heads of households. How many of you are grandparents? Put your hands up now. Come on, keep your hands up, please. Come on. How many of you are parents? Okay. G <laughs> Two hands. G keep them up. Keep them up. You can do it. Come on, it's all a little workout for this morning, all right? Um, G Jesus said, when he, when he said to the disciples, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. How many of you are in a position that you are, could, are or could be making a disciple? Which means if you're an older sibling and you have a younger sibling, you could teach them about Christ from time to time. You have a friend who maybe doesn't know Jesus or is less mature in their faith, and you teach them. How many of you are in a position where you could disciple somebody? Okay. So you start to get the idea. You can put your hands down. There's a lot. Those are leaders. So pretty much all of you are leaders in some way or another. That's how the Bible defines it. The Bible, uh, you get this picture in the New Testament church when you get to the book of Acts. The church is actually a family of families. Then when we start looking at the church, the church actually reflects what's supposed to be happening in a Christian family, which is there's a mini church there. And guess who the pastors are? <laughs> well, the parents come together and lead the church in the home. Dad steps up and takes responsibility for that. All right? And you lead as pastors. So equip to equip. That's why these Acts things, and I haven't been yet because I haven't been around, but We've studied Acts many times together <laughs> with groups. And that's why studies like that are so important. Getting into a small group or you know, community group is so important. To be equipped. Why? So that you can start to equip others. And you, what you're going to find is when you start equipping others, what happens? You discover how much you don't know. <laughs> and you're like, oh man. And you get these questions and you're like, wow, I... I don't know. Or you fake it. You're like, well, the answer to the question. No. Hopefully you don't fake it. That's an opportunity for you to go and learn more. That's how you grow in your faith as a leader. So three things that we, that three uh, indications that we know we're building around God's word is joy increases. Real worship takes place. Leaders are equipped to equip. And then finally, traditions are rekindled to help us remember and proclaim. And what I love, this passage goes on to talk about, they discovered that they were in a season as a people of God that Moses had, the law of Moses had commanded called the Feast of Booths. And what this feast basically was, was once a year, they were to take about a week and they're supposed to go build these little booths. They call them booths. They're basically like little huts around the town in public places, in their homes, in their front yards, wherever they you know, felt led to do so. And then they would go and basically camp out in these booths for a week. Sounds kind of fun if you don't mind me saying so. And bring the barbecue and eat some fat and sweet wine while you're at it. But the, they were to dwell in these booths. And what this was was a, a time where they would come together for a week for a very specific purpose of remembering how good God was to them in the, when they were wandering in the desert as people of God. They remembered that. And what happens is they had, they had kind of lost track of that feast. And when the leaders sat down and studied the law of God, and they saw that, they go, whoa, we're actually in that week right now. Get out, start proclaiming. Heads of households, go tell your families. Everybody proclaim it, publish it all around. We're going to have this feast of booze right now. Go build your booze, dwell on them. And the people responded with sorrow and annoyed. No, they were excited and happy and joyful and they got to have a big celebration because of it. Tradition was sparked and it, it, it set off this pattern you're going to see in the next few chapters, this pattern of worship that just sprang out of that focused time together. That's one of the reasons I love the Christmas season is because it, it's still part of the church calendar that, that most churches, even in our culture, still celebrate is the time of Christmas. You know, we, we celebrate the time going up to Christmas commercially in our culture, right? I mean, like it started like right as soon as Halloween was over. It's like, oh, now it's Christmas time. 
You're like, no. But did you know that in the historical church, Christmas time actually begins on Christmas? You know the song, 12 Days of Christmas? Day one is Christmas Day. That means you have 12 days of Christmas after Christmas. Christmas isn't over on the 26th. That's the second day of Christmas. And so you start celebrating, and there's traditions that start building. And remember, as when you get back into the Word of God and you start reading, and that's why I love this Acts study, because we start identifying and noticing what are traditions, what are the ways of Christ and his apostles that we need to rekindle among us? What are things that we can instill in our culture, in our time, in our place, and with our people here in Orange County that, that we, can, we can start to, that'll help us remember who God is, the things he's done, and drive us more toward a desire and a pursuit of Jesus. What are those things? And they're helpful. And God has revealed himself to us in all kinds of traditions that we can continually rekindle. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. That is exactly their purpose. Is that we come together to remember, receive Christ, and also give and proclaim who Christ is. They enable us to spread the word and my, and my suggestion is that we don't com- we complicate stuff way too much in the churches. Keep it simple. Keep it straightforward. You know, there's practices that help us, that we already have in place that help us understand God's relationship to His people, like marriage. You know, you're like, I'm not a very traditional person. Well, if you're married, you likely have a ring on your finger. I don't because my, my I got my man strength. And I finally got my ring off after 20 years. And so I'm waiting to get it resized. <laughs> I'm going to go back on. But you probably have a ring on your finger. That's a tradition. You are a traditional person. <laughs> it's there to remind you of your love for your spouse. And to show all the other people, sorry, I'm taken. <laughs> it's to proclaim something. You know, we got marriage in scripture is meant to be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Whenever we look at a good marriage, we go, okay, that's a, that's a glimpse of what Christ's relationship with the church is, is like. You know, church and, and leadership and structure. When we look at our leaders, we're, we're supposed to be reminded of Jesus. That's why when I look at Jeff, I, just, I go, man, <laughs> no, there he is. No, But you're right, he does, though. He reminds me of Jesus because of the, of, I know Jeff's heart, and I know who he is, and I know the things he pursues, and no, he's not perfect, but I love Jeff, and I love how he reminds me of Jesus. So many other leaders do the same thing. We've got spiritual disciplines God's given us of you know, prayer and fasting and, and giving to the poor. Uh, we anoint the sick with oil, with oil, and we pray for their healing. That's another way that, we can, we can, that God has revealed himself to us. And I talked about the communion of saints, that we have these incredible, this incredible community of the church that among you, those who call themselves faithful are saints. And when we look to a saint, a saint is, is a follower of, of Christ. But when we look at other saints, again, we look at them and we go, that reminds me of Jesus. Either because of their, what we think might be perfections or because of their imperfections. We were reminded of Jesus and his grace for us. The other Christians become kind of these icons of who God is, who he, what he's done through Christ. And we look back at history and we remember the martyrs who came before and, and the other people who lived before us. And we thank God for their example and thank God for what they've done and what he's done through them to make our life possible as Christians. Communion of saints. And then primarily, foundationally, God has revealed himself in Scripture. I mean, this is the most foundational thing that we have to know who God is and what he said and who Jesus is and how we follow him. It's the word of God. This is the normative basis of our lives. If you're not in God's word, I urge you, start reading it. Just daily. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big old thing. Just start out simple. Start out small. Start reading in the book of John. And if you don't know where John is, use the table of contents. If anyone makes fun of you for doing that, tell me, I'll go beat them up. Um, start reading a verse a day. And if you got questions, write them down. And then what do you do? Find a leader and ask them, what does this mean? I don't get it. And they'll either say, oh, I can help you with that. Or they'll say, I don't know. I'll go find out myself. And then they'll go to a leader and say, all right, I do, man. Holy scriptures written by the prophets and apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word for us. 
And this is how we know what God has said and we can read about Jesus and know better how we can continue to rebuild our lives and our church around him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the example, um, really the example of these leaders in scripture who were led by you, um, Ezra and Nehemiah and all those names that were hard to pronounce. Um, Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness in leading the people and being an example for what we're to do. We thank you also, Lord, that throughout your scripture, that your way, the way you, you even established your church was through this pattern of desiring and pursuing the word. And Lord, we thank you that the word is not limited to just what we can or can't understand, but it's, it's found in the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. And so even the simplest person um, can look to Jesus and say, I don't know a lot. I don't know a lot of scripture. I don't understand a lot of scripture. But I look to Jesus to be the fullness in my life. So God, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would uh, move in us, give us a desire, much like you gave the people the desire in this chapter of Nehemiah to, to, to want to know the word, to want the law of God. We have such a confused culture and society right now, which is questioning identity, and we're all, we don't know what's happening, we don't know who we are, and, and God, the church is meant to be the place where we, we are reminded of those things. And so, God, we thank you that, that we get to be a part of generations. Um, I thank you for generations that it's a light on a hill and that you have placed in the leaders here a desire to proclaim the gospel and know the gospel. And, Lord, I pray that you would continue to lead them in that pursuit, that you would continue to give them a desire to together come and understand your direction and your leading in this church Lord, that nothing would take precedent over their desire to know Jesus and know who he is through your word. Um, God, we come to you as we, as we close this message out and we confess that, um, like those people, we have not been perfect at following your law. Lord, we, we confess our sin and our lack of measuring up to your standard, which is complete holiness. But God, we thank you for the beauty of the cross, which reminds us that we're not judged on the basis of the law. We're judged on the basis of grace through our faith in Christ. And so God, we come to you and we reaffirm our faith in you. And we thank you for this time together to, to remember that. In your name we pray, amen.